So there's the question. Did Christianity, did the message of Jesus propel us into better days? Or like often we're told, was it an impediment to science and to technology and to advancement? Did what happened in that manger, besides offering forgiveness and love and harmony, did it make a difference in making the world a better place for those around us? We talked about the environment last week and how Christianity brought a whole new Judeo ethic to taking care of our planet. Today I want to look at how Christianity and Jesus in particular impacted science and education. And like I said last week, this isn't a political series. Christians and people of conscience can disagree on, on science how old the earth is, the mechanism God used to create us. We can have healthy dialogue within science on our hypothesis. Within education, Christians and people of conscience can disagree on local level schools or federal schools or vouchers for schools. This isn't about any of that. It's about how the idea of education for all and scientific advancement can be traced back to what if Jesus was never born. See, Christmas came with a mandate, and that mandate was to get to know the truth through two sources, the world and the word. Theologians call this general revelation. God reveals himself through the world around us. We can discover things about our purpose, our plan, our creator from everything around us. Science, the world, mathematics, people, observed wisdom. The Christmas came with an ability to learn about our creator from the world, but also from the word. When Jesus comes into the manger, he's known as the word and he came and his biographies are recorded in words and we could learn about what's called specific revelation, specific details of God's plan through words and through the person of Jesus. But the reason why science in particular flowed from a Christian worldview is because all the other ways of thinking about philosophy didn't set the stage well for thinking about a rational world created by a rational God that was made rationally. Think about all the different philosophies. Let's take Hinduism, for example. Hinduism says that an impersonal force made an illusionary world. And the way you solve the problem of life is discovering this world is an illusion. You enlighten yourself out of that illusion. You don't study the world. It's not a rational world. It's an irrational world. It's a dream reality. Atheism says that an irrational process, a random process, created a rational world that should be studied rationally. It's not logically consistent. The Greek dualism believed in something very, very uh, silly, really, if you've studied Zeus and, and Demeter and the like. It's that fickle, irrational gods who sleep around and get mad and do crazy stuff. You never know what they're going to do. Fickle, irrational gods made an evil world. Why would you study that rationally? See, Greek dualism taught that everything in the world, the world itself was evil. To use your logic was good. Logic is good. But the material things of this world, the, the material things of your own life were inherently evil. It's called Greek dualism. But Christianity from Judaism, made popular by Jesus Christ, expanding now beyond Judaism to Rome and Greece, had this thesis in mind. A rational God made a rational world that can be studied rationally. As you study that world, you can not only find out about the world, but find out about the God who made it and the purpose he has for you. That unlike the Greeks who thought that truth could be pursued but never found, in Christianity, truth could be pursued, found, and enjoyed in a person. But he reveals those truths through both the world and the word. 
So I want to give you a couple of idioms. One of the idioms is science. There's a, there's a phrase called to think God's thoughts after him. This phrase comes from a very famous Christian astronomer. In fact, everything we know about astronomy today just about can be traced back to the work of this man, Johann Kepler. He wanted to be a theologian. He wrote as much about the Bible and Jesus in his own personal daily devotions as he did about calculating the different planetary works in the solar system. And he says, when I study in science, I am thinking God's thoughts after him. Now this idea comes face to face with Christmas because the Bible begins in one of Jesus' biographies and says the world was created by the very word of God himself. The world was created by the word. John starts, he says, in the beginning was the word. Let me tell you about this word. The word he uses here is the word logos. And again, he's speaking to a a, a world that's filled with Judaism, but also with Greek and Roman thought. And if you were a Greek and Roman, you've been teaching since Aristotle's time that the whole world was made by, by ultimate reality, what they called the logos. If only we could get to know the logos, the the thing behind all logic. And Paul does something fascinating here, and John picks up on this in his biography. Of all the words he could use, he uses a word that meant something to the Greeks and Romans and to the Jews. He said, in the beginning was the great logos. Now, if you were a follower of Judaism, you knew that the logos, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He was the one who brought order. He was a personal God. But he took this idea of this... this, this idea of the Logos from the Greeks, and he brings them together and he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then he says, all things were made through him. This is an outrageous claim that all things in the world were made by the Logos. And rather than the Logos being something out there the Greeks talked about you could never know, the Logos, the universal reality, came near in a manger, the Word the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we got to see what the purpose of the universe was like. We got to see what our creator was like. He was full of grace and truth. Reading a book this year, it's called Truth and Beauty by a guy named uh, Andrew Clavin. Andrew was a screenwriter. You've probably seen many movies he's done, some old Clint Eastwood movies like True Crime. And he's considered one of the best mystery writers in the world. Andrew Clavin. He grew up as an agnostic, but he loved literature, he loved the romantics, he loved studying um, about any source of truth he could find. Well, his son, though they'd grown up Jewish, non-practicing agnostics, his son became a follower of Jesus. And Andrew, despite having an incredible career in Hollywood and novels and writing and everything else, he was shocked to find out that his son had become a Jesus follower. Intrigued, he began to search the world of literature and science for truth. And he began to read the biographies of Jesus. He would turn to his son and say, son, I don't understand why you've come to this conclusion. I read about Jesus. I don't even understand what he's talking about in these gospels. And as he began his conversion through the evidence to know Jesus, he said his son said something to him that changed his life. He said, dad... You keep reading the biographies of Jesus looking for a philosophy or looking for a religion. What if you just read it like you're sitting down talking to grandpa and you just try and get to know the man? What's important to him? What's he trying to say? What are his values? What is his message? 
And that personal approach of beginning to see the claims of Jesus, who is he, what was he like, what does it mean for him to get to know you is what had Andrew Claven move from being an agnostic cultural Jew to becoming a follower of Jesus in his late 40s. He began to see the world as a way to get to know the word. And that's why sciences were developed by Christians because the word, Jesus, created the world is what the Bible claims and then the world can be a way in which to get to know him. In fact, several historians have recorded this. There's a uh, historian who wrote a book called uh, Free Enterprise and Capitalism Christianity. He says it this way. The rediscovery of the Bible and its message at the time of the Reformation, flowing together with the best in Greek logic and thinking, detonated a chain reaction leading to the explosion of knowledge which began at the start of the scientific revolution and proceeds with ever-increasing momentum even today. In fact, in his book, What If Jesus Was Never Born, there's two writers. You might recognize one, um, Alfred North Whitehead and Robert Oppenheimer. They stress that modern science was born out of Christianity's absolute insistence, medieval insistence, that a rational God made a rational universe that could be studied rationally. That was the platform by which searching for knowledge and truth in the world came from. And so it flowed through time. The things we take advantage of, the the technologies we experience today, flow back to people who said, if a rational God made a rational universe to be studied rationally, what can I learn about the world and about God by studying the world around me? I mentioned one guy already. His name is uh, Johann Kepler. Johann Kepler, (laughs) imagine looking through his telescope, 16th century, and he was able to calculate all of the planets, all of the measurements, all of the timing of how every planet and all the moons he could see at the time moved. He was dumbfounded. Though he wanted to be a theologian, he was a scientist. And everything we know about modern astronomy traces back to the work of Johann Kepler, his mathematician. He said, what was striking to me is whether it's in music, or whether it's in astronomy, or whether it's in the universe, the whole world speaks the language of mathematics. A God who is logical, a God who has rhythm, a God who has purpose. And if God made the planets with purpose and rhythm, maybe he's designed us for purpose and rhythm as well. Well, his work and everything we know about modern astronomy will build up to a a person you've probably heard of before, but he desperately needs a a marketing director, and that's Sir Isaac Newton. Most people know only about Sir Isaac Newton that uh, he dropped an apple on his head, right? Poor guy. It's all that's known of the guy. He's a genius. Everything we know about calculus today, he developed calculus, and most people only know that he had an apple fall on his head. But what he really did is he asked a question. He proposed a question that had not really been proposed before, and it was this. Why does an apple fall down because of gravity, and why does the moon and the planets orbit because of gravity? It's the same force. Why does one make it go round and the other make it go down? Well, I had a guy I interviewed here several years ago. His name was Mark Whitaker. If you don't know his story, he was part of the largest price-fixing scheme in U.S. history, and he was guilty of it. His wife found out about it, encouraged him to go to the FBI, which he did, and he turned himself in and became the the longest-running FBI informant in U.S. history, exposing a world price-fixing scheme in the corn industry. He got commendations from the FBI, but had to serve about 10 years, and it was during his time in prison he came to know Jesus because of Christians who visited him and walked with him. But he's a scientist. He'd been a scientist his whole life. He spent all his time in prison reading the works of Sir Isaac Newton who wrote as much about science as he did about the Bible. 
In fact, I just started getting to Sir Isaac Newton five or six years ago when I interviewed Mark because I had no idea how much he'd written about the Bible and the mathematics of the Bible and the predictions of, of the prophecies that led to Jesus. But Sir Isaac Newton, who in trying to figure out why apples fall and planets curve, he developed everything you and I know today is calculus. So if you hated calculus class, blame this guy. But if you've ever been in a building engineered with, with calculus, if you've ever got one of the technologies that NASA developed because a calculus got us out of space, all of those things came because of the work of this Bible-believing Jesus follower, the father of physics and modern calculus. So as he calculated all the different movements of all the different planets, he then hires a watchmaker to build something much more complicated than this. I, I built this one yesterday, and let me tell you, it was not easy to build, actually on Friday. So this is with, with mathematical precision. You wind it up, and all the different planets would turn at all the different calculated percentages and timing that he had figured out. But this was hundreds of years ago. So the watchmaker that he hired to build this thing, it was monstrous with all kinds of belts and turns and twists and gears that made the whole thing go. And he just was seeing a small demonstration in real time of what he had calculated in the cosmos. As he was watching this incredible invention that this watchmaker had created, one of his colleagues came in. His colleagues was a skeptic toward God and Jesus and the Bible, but he loved inventions and loved science. His skeptic comes into Sir Isaac Newton and he sees this incredible invention, much bigger with wheels and turns and, 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 and all types of interconnecting pieces. And he says, who made that? To which Sir Isaac Newton said, nobody. He said, well, you must have misunderstood me. This incredible invention based on the cosmos with all the different turning and twists. Who did you have make that? Sir Isaac Newton said, I heard you. Nobody made that friend wasn't catching on. He said, no, I mean this invention that, that turns this thing around. With, it's clearly someone invented this thing, to which Sir Isaac Newton said, why can't you believe that a simple invention was made by no one when it's a mere model of the cosmos that you want to me to believe was made by no one? No, this is a mere model, clearly invented and made by someone with a brain, but it mimics an even greater, grander design of what can be found in the heavens. And that became the beginning of a journey of two scientists beginning to talk about faith and God because of their love for science and Sir Isaac's love for faith and showing that the evidence point to God. Which brings us to another scientist. If you've ever drank milk, it's been pasteurized. And that pasteurized milk can be pointed back to Louis Pasteur. The father of modern biology. Everything we know about biology comes back to this guy. In fact, there's a quote. He says, when I study, I learn about my master. I learn about God. The more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the creator. I pray while I'm engaged at work in my laboratory. This guy was known as the man who saved a billion lives. If you took Jesus out of the equation and took least Pasteur out of the equation, a billion people would not be alive today. This is the man who developed the vaccines for smallpox, for claria, for TB, for anthrax. If you remember back in high school class, you probably learned that there was a time that people believed if you threw a pile of rags in the corner and you waited long enough, all of a sudden spontaneous generation, there would be, mice would run out of it. This is the guy who shut all that down. He did tests and said, no, that's not. He developed germ theory. He developed the idea of vaccines. He then said, no, 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 no. You don't get life 
mice, from non-life rags. He developed what's known as biogenesis. Life only comes from life, and he says he got that from the Bible. You cannot get from a rock, the inorganic, to the organic. He says life comes from life, and because we are alive, we know we come from a creator that was filled with life. All of these ideas, the founding of biology, the founding of physics, the founding of, of astronomy, and I could go through just about every other major science, speak to people who are motivated to know the word through the world around them. Even the science, uh, scientific method we know today, right, was developed by, by Francis Bacon. Again, a Bible-believing Christian. And he said, you know, unlike the Greeks who thought you could pursue truth but never find the truth, the Bible says that God wants the truth to be known, to be found. You can experience it. You can enjoy it. So he developed a method called the scientific method that said this truth is not only pursued, but it can be found. But he said, but also the Bible says that we as human beings have a tendency to lie to ourselves, to convince ourselves of things that aren't true. So let's develop a method of hypothesis and testing of those, those hypotheses to make sure we're not deluding ourselves or fooling ourselves. And since we serve an unchanging God and an unchanging world, if something is true, it should be test and be provable over and over again. But his faith not only helped him in his pursuit of science and knowledge, but also in his facing of death. He would develop pneumonia on an Easter day, and he would eventually write in his journal that his hope and confidence in the next world was based on the evidence he had in this world. Here's what he wrote in his journal. Knowledge is the rich storehouse for the glory of the Creator. Be merciful unto me for my Savior's sake, and receive me into your bosom. He was trusting as a man of science that Jesus would be the one to give him mercy and receive him into eternity. But he saw science as a storehouse to understand the creator who had made him. What if that's true? What if this claim that science is thinking God's thoughts after him, what if there is evidence you might be someone who manages people? Maybe you're a psychologist. Maybe you're a counselor. Maybe you're somebody who manages people because you motivate them. Maybe you're somebody who works with numbers. You ever wonder where all the logic comes from, where all the rhythm comes from, where all the pieces, what if there's a truth all around you that your connection with God doesn't just happen on Sunday or during spiritual times, but all day long you're experiencing God's thoughts after him, managing people well, loving people well, serving people well, discovering new truths and new agendas and new strategies. What if all of this part of your life was a way to connect with the purpose God made for you? Suddenly, all of life gets infused with meaning and purpose, not just religious or spiritual activities. That's this mindset brought in from science. But then there's education. And education skyrockets as well in several different ways. Because if, if science was about thinking God's thoughts after him, the mantra of education was, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. You see, to get to know the word... For Christianity meant you had to know words. Because if, if in this manger is the word, then his biography is written out in words. And so to know the word, you had to know words. So Christianity became a catalyst for literacy. Let me back you up to John's biography for a second. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the mission statement of the church, what Jesus said, here's what I want you to be all about. He said, I want you to go therefore and teach people how to observe the things I have said. But what he said was written down in books. 
And so Christianity begins to spread education all through the world. Rich, poor, Greek, slave, everybody wanted to be educated so that they could know the truth and the truth could set them free. Now this started 100 years earlier with Judaism. During the Babylonian exile, they set up synagogues for the first time where Greeks, God-fearers, and Jews could study to get to know how to be literate. This came back to what's called the Shema. It's here in, uh, in Deuteronomy. It says right here in the passage, These words which I command you today will be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Judaism was a teaching philosophy. Christianity then exploded that beyond the scene, beyond Judaism. And now went from Judaism to Christianity. And everywhere Christianity went into every single planet and every single continent, every single area, well not planet, but every single continent, every single country, Christianity brought literacy. And don't take my word for it. Ask the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama says, if you look at the impact specifically in India, just as one of many, many places that literacy spread through Christianity, the Dalai Lama said Christian missionaries make the greatest contribution in education and improving health care in the remote corners of the world. Because we want you to get to know the word, but to get to know the word, you have to first know words. Continuing in India, the, uh, the national education minister said, today, today, 30% of India's 1.25 billion people are illiterate. That's the population of the United States are illiterate today. And yet he said the reason we got up to 70% is because Christian missionaries have played a major role in taking education to the poor and the downtrodden in the country. And you can see this in China. You see this in India all through history. To know the word, you had to know words. Maybe you've never been to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. We just had a group of women go up there. But about once or twice a year, we'll take a group from Horizon. We'll go up to the Bible Museum. And just as a nature of how the Bible has influenced our culture, even if you don't believe it's God's word, if you don't believe it's true, it is a major mechanism to understanding all of Western culture. And so, you know, we we bring groups of, uh, sometimes it's, it's couples up there, sometimes it's women's groups, men's groups, and they just go to this museum and study how the Bible has influenced everything around us. And it has. I'll give you an example. The Bible is the most translated book in human history. It's translated into 670 languages total. The next best choice, if you want to learn how to, how to learn where your language might be from in a book, would be to go to The Prince. It's translated into 382 languages. So because the Bible's been translated more than any other book in, in, the, in the history, it's used as a source of literacy, teaching whole cultures their own language because of Christian missionaries. And the phrases we use, the codex we use, the the way in which we communicate with each other today is because the Bible has given us the language and meaning to phrases. And so what we do today, go back one. So what we learn today, our language, our culture, our meaning, our phrases, they come from William Shakespeare, who also, as you saw maybe earlier in the service, in his deathbed, in his will, said that he was a follower of Jesus and trusting Jesus Christ as his forgiver and leader. Many of the phrases we use, that we, you read William Shakespeare and you think it's full of cliches until you realize he invented all those cliches. They weren't cliches, they were original. How we talk and how we communicate come from that. But he got most of his cliches out of the Bible and popularized them. Here's just a few. See if you use any of these phrases today. Let there be light. Ah, be careful of the forbidden fruit. Am I my brother's keeper? The gospel truth. I'm telling you the gospel truth here. Ah, uh, she's the apple of my eye. Hey, we really scapegoat to that guy in that project. A wolf in sheep's clothing, go the extra mile. There's literally tens of tens of thousands of phrases 
that are just built into the codex of how we communicate that come directly from how the Bible has influenced our culture. But education spreads with this idea that to know the word, you need to know words. So let me take you back to the Greeks, because certainly there was education before Christianity. The Greeks invented the gymnasium. So when we think of gymnasium, we think of gym class. But the gymnasium was the place where you went to study if you were a Greek. So they certainly made education a huge high priority if you were a man, if you were a Greek. And if in the Greek-Roman caste system you were high enough to deserve an education, but if you weren't a Greek and you weren't a man, maybe if you're a woman you'd be trained in the home, maybe. But certainly not if you were poor and certainly not if you were not high enough in the caste system. This particular university I got a chance to visit in Sardis, it's in Turkey, and it's a monstrous Greek uh, university or gymnasium. But if you look just next door to that is the biggest synagogue they've ever found. So gymnasium on the right, biggest synagogue ever found on the left. So while the Greeks were teaching the male Greeks, the synagogue was open for everyone. Men, women, free, poor, everyone could learn. Everyone could be educated. And that's what Christianity brought that was so distinct from the Greeks. Everybody could be educated and everybody could be learned. So we fast forward through history. I'll just kind of give you some brief moments. Sixth century, the monks developed one of the first schools for writing and reading. Sixth century, the monks said, we're going to find a way to continue to teach people reading and writing to educate the illiterate population. This has got to be a priority and it grows from there. Modern day, first university ever established was in Paris, founded by the church, 1250 AD, first university. And every university you've ever heard all over Europe, all over America, studied and patterned themselves after that one. And did you know when it came to America, 90% of all the universities in America were founded to be Bible schools, to teach people science and the Bible from a Christian worldview, including Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. If I go look into their original logos, I'll put the logos up. The original logos, you can actually see the Old and New Testament still built into their logo today. Though their logo today and their motto is Verde, their original for Harvard was Truth for Christ in the Church. That was the motto for Harvard when they began. Yale, light and truth, have the claims of Jesus to be the light of the world, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. Princeton, the motto for Princeton, you can again see the Old and New Testament built in the logo. Under God's power, she flourishes. Now, though these institutions may have moved away from their foundation, they were motivated to, to teach education so people could know words and know the word and know the truth because the truth can set you free. These were motivated by the very words of Jesus who said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You see, Christianity has always been about educating and teaching and helping people not just pursue truth but find the truth and experience the truth. I'll give you one more, Ireland. If you, if you enjoy a good Guinness, anyone enjoy a good Guinness, you can thank Christianity for that. Arthur Guinness was very concerned with the r unbelievable alcoholism going on in Ireland because people were drinking mostly gin. He wanted to create a, a food-based drink, so he created the Guinness. And the company does so well, he begins to pour money into to education. He pours money into, in, into saving people during some, the Great Potato Famine. Amazing book, if you've never read this book. But one of the things he funds is the Sunday school movement. And if you weren't part of Sunday school, maybe you remember Sunday school. Mom and dad drug you to Sunday school and you didn't want to get up early and it was really boring. Maybe that's what you remember. 
But long before that, when Sunday school first began, it was the attempt to teach literacy to the poorest of poor all throughout the world. And yes, you learned about the Bible, and yes, you learned about God, but the real goal was to educate people through Sunday school. Like, why'd you call it Sunday school? It was to school people on education. And Guinness took the money from his Guinness beer, and he literally taught an entire generation of those who are impoverished and poor through the Sunday school movement during his time in Ireland. Because he wants you to know what I want you to know. What I think Jesus wants you to know. I don't want you just to know some cool things about science or cool things about education, but I want you to know that you can know, enjoy, and pursue the truth. This is what life is about, that God says, I am not just up here, I want you to know me. Pursue me, but also you can find me. I, I came near so you could experience me, know who I am and what I am like and what matters to me and that you matter to me. That, that truth can be enjoyed. Forgiveness is not just an ethereal idea. You can learn how to forgive somebody who's wronged you because you saw that I forgave you when you wronged me. You can serve other people who don't deserve to be served because I served you when you didn't deserve to be served. We're doing a series right now at our first service in Philippians, and it says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. I want my followers to have a mindset, a way of thinking that's just like Jesus. For God, Jesus, who was in the very form of God, did not consider equality to be God, but he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He was even willing to die on a cross for his for his people he made. And if the God of the universe is willing to humble himself and serve other people and love other people and prioritize other people's needs, then what would it be look like for you to have that mindset in your marriage? Not, hey, I said this, it's my fault, I'm right, you're right, you're right, I'm right. How can I serve you? How can I adapt to you? How can I pursue the truth in the life that Jesus had? How can we bring more forgiveness into our marriage, more patience into our family, more adaptation into the way we, we work with one another in our company? What if we all had the mindset of Christmas, the God who is the God of the universe adapted himself to us to serve us better? And that's why we as a church are an educational tool. We are a community church. We want to help comfortably connect you to God. But we want to teach we want to help you learn. We want to help you experience everything God has for you. If you've been on our app, you'll see on our app, there's several different kind of menus. We have 20 years of history, 20 years of teaching, 20 years of messages on our, on our app. One of those links is called Book by Book. Literally 20 years, entire book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You can just use that tool to begin to learn in your own life. What does God have to say about that? Or maybe you're more about topics. You can go to our keyword search and say, what does God say about depression? What does God say about leadership? What does God say about being a husband? The reason we do what we do is because we want you to know words to know the word. We want you to discover the world around you, discover that the God who made you and gave you gifts and skills, he wants to use you to create a purpose. He's got significance in store for you. So when you're investing your time and energy at our church, you're investing in something that's trying to teach and educate and inspire people to find their ultimate purpose in life. Because we believe that's why Jesus came. He came that we would know the truth, experience the truth, and yes, enjoy the truth. And like we said in that song earlier, we think we're part of this mission that Jesus created to go and make the world a better place. And so you see this big old fancy Christmas tree we have up here that looks really pretty, and it does. 
But that tree is always a reminder of the tree we put at the front door. That this time of year, we want to continue the legacy of making the world a better place. Like those educators and like those scientists and like those we talked about last week. We work with inter-parish ministries here locally to help those who need food. We work with City Gospel for those who are homeless and those who maybe are going through addiction and need somebody to come alongside them and to guide them and to direct them and to help shape them to get another job. We work internationally with orphanages as we'll find out how Christianity inspired orphanages in a few weeks with back-to-back. And maybe you've never been part of going on a back-to-back trip as we're planning those for the next couple of years, starting those back up again or your kids going. Or maybe you've never worked with Blee's partners and the medical doctors that we've sent. And many, many of you have gone and nurses down to help and give away millions of dollars every year of free health care to those who can never afford it. So it's this time of year when you walk in our front door, you'll see our giving tree. And all of those things that we're working with all year round, there's a little ornament on the tree. So grab one of those ornaments on the way out. It might be a gift you're giving to somebody here locally, something internationally. But it's the ways in which we as a church are working through the message of Jesus to love people in the name of Jesus, serve people in the name of Jesus, that we'd be known not just a church that teaches stuff, but a church that lives out the reality of God. That's what I want for you and I want for us, that we would be a place that we pursue, experience, and enjoy the truth. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this message of Christmas. We are so unaware that all the world around us has been shaped by your influence. But Father, we, uh, we ask that each person here would magnify that influence. They would search you in the truth around them. They would educate, whether it's through their kids or their clients or their employees or their friends, what it means to experience the best kind of life. And show us, Father, how this giving tree can just be one source of our attempt as a church to do unto the least of these which you've done unto us, to love us, to care for us, and to watch over us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this week, and we'll see you next week as we continue our journey into medicine and into human rights. Thanks.